Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 133 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hey. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Mm, could have been part of the Hey Crew, mm-hmm. but he didn't want to be it. Here's the thing, I'm a rebel. Did y'all notice that my number went up a little bit in the intro? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Truly, no. <laughs> yeah, honestly... I guess I was in a fugue state, because no way. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's just say I got some birthday shame. I shared a little bit about it last week, but I got some more. I, again, I don't want to start off on a shame note, but I recognize that I've gone up like eight books, so my bad. I mean, let's start on a shame note. Shame note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Including the books that I talked about last week, I added a total of 14 books to my shelf after my birthday. Oh, Whoa. <laughs> Double digits, like healthy, healthy double digits. I That's know. not an 11, folks. Yeah, no, and Bailey, we only do like 26 podcasts a year, and one of them is like an end-of-year wrap-up show. Uh-huh, so that's uh-huh. more than half of the books you will be forced to read during this podcast. But sometimes, mm-hmm. like, you have the book on your shelf, too, and it gets pulled for you. Okay, yeah, we can all justify things, Bailey. We can all uh-huh. make things make sound a little better. But I'm just giving you raw numbers here. You're right. Well, this is your fault, Andrew, because you gave me a gift certificate to my local bookstore. Everyone knows. Chevaliers. Shout right, out. I, hey, I'm very generous. I didn't give you 14 books worth of money. <laughs> That's fair. I gave you $14, which is not even enough to buy a paperback. <laughs> okay. So I got there, got excited for my gift certificate. So I got like, what, two and a half books to justify that. And then I got, mm-hmm. uh, when I walked in, mm-hmm. I hadn't been in Chevaliers for a while because I'd been on my trip to Maine, as Pedro's know. I walk in and Katie, the bookseller, who I want to be my friend, is like, I haven't seen you for a while. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been out of town. And she's like, we have something here for you. And she pulled out this like paper bag that just said my last name on it really big and opened it inside was a book. And there was no note. No, I thought it was going to be a dead dove. <laughs> Do not eat. Don't know what I was expecting. And I was like, "Do you know who left this for me?" And she's like, "No." What? And I was like, "Huh? Who gave this to me?" And it's weird because I already own this book. It's on the to-read list. It's Rodham <laughs> by Curtis Sinfeld, who we had a few weeks ago. And I was like, "Well, I'm excited to read this book, but who would have given it to me?" And they're like, "I don't know." And so I was like, "I guess I'll just trade it in and get another bonus book." So all this to say, I then texted the group. Who gave me this secret book? And luckily, it was one of you guys and not just a random scary stalker. But who could the murderer be? <laughs> reveal yourself. You know what? I'll reveal myself, as I often do, with a complaint. Oh, no. Several complaints. Toby would like to speak to the manager. <laughs> <laughs> Chevaliers, as much as I love you, you really bungled that one. <laughs> uh, you were like the plan, which admittedly was fairly complex was that you were supposed to come in and buy some books of your own, as I knew you would. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm like, I got the Christie. I know every human's motives. And you would buy your own. And then they would be like, oh, and here's a surprise one. I just kind of hand it to you as you went out the door. Oh. I thought it would be like a cool present. Like, you know, you think you're done getting books for the day? Well, pow. Um, and also, it's supposed to say, like, they were supposed to say, happy birthday from Toby and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> like there's nothing there's nothing in there about it being like a totally unlabeled book. Well, makes no, I want credit. They for my did cool say that, that apparently I was in like the employee memo that went out that was like if Bailey comes in, <gasps> you're famous. Yeah. <laughs> give her this book surprise and I mean that's kind of a good present to be I don't know, maybe they'll be my friend. Yeah, I'm helping you infiltrate, you know, the the society of chevaliers. <laughs> So all this to say, That's I added some books. What did you get instead of the book that I should have known you already have? Because I think you've said the words on this podcast and I could have looked at your 
uh, good reads for this podcast. So shame on me. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> eh, I'll I'll chastise my. You know what? I'll shame myself because we're part of this <laughs> part of the podcast. It's a shame note right now. Um, I traded it for a book called Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey, which I believe is a haunted house oh, book. Oh, not that one. Any, no. <laughs> it's one that like I've heard a lot about the author, and I love a good haunted house book, so I went for it. I also got Sundial by Katriana Ward, which is a horror book. True Biz by mm-hmm. Sarah Novick. She, I have another book of hers on my list called Girl at War, but that's kind of more of a serious historical one. And this one is, I believe it's a coming of age of um, deaf high school students, which sounds awesome. Um, and then I got a, a book of essays by Jesse Klein. Um, it's called I'll Show Myself Out Essays on Middle Age and Motherhood. And I was like, I can relate. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, the bookseller who I want to be my friend was like, I think you would <laughs> like this book. So I felt like I had to buy it. And it's fine. It's a romance novel called <laughs> For Love of the Bard. I believe it's like a Shakespeare lover um, romance novel. So I'm probably going to like it. But I didn't necessarily expect to get that one. I would say that is not my shame. That just, you know, kind of happened to me. Bailey, that is so concrete a sign of a budding friendship. She thought of you and thought of what book you might like. No, no joke. I think that's a good sign. But she's also trying to sell me stuff. True. Remember, I- Bailey, they're booksellers, not your friends. <laughs> <laughs> They're booksellers, not bookfrienders. Um, yeah. Number one rule of book buying is never fall in love. Did anybody else have any shame to share? I have no shame. <gasps> Shameless as well. Just like that guy who's on the bear now. <laughs> <laughs> we spend all the money we would have spent on books for ourselves to give books to Bailey. That's true. Yes, it's true. I do really feel like, you know, the seal has been broken or something because, like, I was pretty good up until recently. What? I went a little crazy. <laughs> You were looking for excuses to buy books left and right. I know. But I was also spending my money on puzzles and embroidery floss, too. That doesn't make it better. (laughs) So, Dylan, you had an interesting question that you found on Reddit. I feel like you've been following Reddit R books just to come up with questions for the podcast. Look. (laughs) Dylan doesn't even read. Sometimes you hit a wall after four years of podcasting and you just go to the weirdos on R books. The question, which was very cutthroat, was what is your record for most pages read in 24 hours? Mm. Oh. And I assume it's not like for class. No. I just say like Although for a lot of people did say like I had a college thing and I had to read like this book in a time. Gotcha. Um, mm. But the the record record ones that were getting scary were like, you know, 500 to 700 pages, which is nuts. I was going to say for me, it's probably like five to 600. Yeah. Is that weird? Is that a lot? Can you remember specifically what yeah. book it was? Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. Oh. That is a literal page turner. That's a spicy meatball. Yep. <laughs> I'm reading Poisonwood Bible in 24 hours. Oh, yeah. That's a long one, too. And yeah. it's not a quick one. That's, yeah. lo- that's longer than Gone Girl, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And it's not a page turner. It's a great it book. Not a page it, turner. Not a page turner. But it's one of those things where, like, in a movie when someone goes to space and then they return and no time has passed. But it's like, but I lived 20 years. It's like, you don't understand. I've read about these women for 20 years of what happened, and that was just yesterday. It's almost like 100 years of solitude. <laughs> almost. But um, I remember listening to Audible while doing errands and then coming back and reading the book just so I could do like 24 hours of like, I can push through this because mm-hmm. Billy didn't believe mm-hmm. I could do it. And uh, we should mention that was for the uh, wonderful, if somewhat short-lived, Magrin Wells Book Club that yep. we all participated in, in which I recommended probably the worst book I've ever recommended to a group of people. Uh, which is, I mean, I like Kem Nunn, but it was Tapping the Source by <laughs> Kem Nunn, <laughs> a, a, a book that I had not read yet, 
And that is the last time I will ever recommend a book to people that I have not personally read yet. Funnily enough, those were two of the, I think, three books that I read for that book club. Because oh, no. it only ever lined up for when we were also in town, like three times. Oh, God. Probably most families don't have book clubs. So it was just like Dylan's parents and his siblings and like us, the families. Um, and when my family would come to town, Andrew and my mom, they would read the book. Um, and it lasted for like, what, two, three years? Yeah. Andrew, it makes me shudder to think that we did not know each other very well at the time. And probably a great deal of your impression with of who I was as a person was based on the fact that I chose Tapping the Source. <laughs> Which is your favorite book. I understand. <laughs> I still know that. <laughs> You're a surfer. That's all we need to know. Mm. Um, but how many pages have you guys read in a day? Ooh, I don't know that I have an exact number. I definitely have read almost all of a longer Harry Potter in a day. And mm. so I don't know specifics. Um, and then, like, I have some college things where I read Sister Carrie by Theodore Dressier in, like, two days. And that's a huge book. So one of those days must have been big. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just have to say I'm kind of upset that Andrew went first because my answer is exactly the same. <laughs> just with the Harry Potter part. I thought you were going to say yeah. sister whatever. <laughs> You didn't get messy with Dressy? <laughs> I mean, I've gotten messy with Dressy, but I like to take my time. Oh. All right. Well, Gone Girl, Gillian Flynn. Highly recommend. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> oh, I read A Little Life. Oh, yeah. It, it, within 48 hours, which is a lot considering it's 720 pages and very sad. That was the best <laughs> moment of my life where she had to read in 48 hours and then he came in when she was done and she was just lying face down on the floor for a little bit. I was like, just leave me here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Toby, did you read a page turner this week? It's a mystery. Yes, I did. I did read a book. Uh, I read The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. Toby, stop oh, leaving bodies around. Books, books, books falling <laughs> on a man's corpse. Actually... A woman's corpse. So check your privilege, <gasps> I Andrew. Own, hey, I own my privilege and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is actually, it's not a logline. It's a short summary, but I'll give it to you anyway. All right. The central mystery of Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library is right there in the title. How the heck does the dead body of a young flapper girl end up in the library of an elderly, respectable couple way out in the country? Ooh, ooh, let me guess. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, I'm just going to... That's it. I got it. Poirot, uh, Marple, and Megan Wells. This is still part of the summary. Christie's second most famous detective, Miss Marple, applies her theory that everything you need to know about humanity can be learned from observing life in a small English village to the case and produces predictable results. But whether or not modern audiences will leave this whodunit satisfied is another question. Hmm. Intrigue. Danger. Marple. Marple. Is it um, what we would call a cozy mystery? I don't when think I, so. When I picture Miss Marple, I think of cozy mystery. I think of like everything mm -hmm. is fine in the end, even though people die. Don't worry about it. Well, there's kid death in this one. So I don't think cozy mystery often has the murder of a child. Ooh, yikes. I'm not going to give you the plot because the plot would be ruining everything. You'd know who the murderer was. But I'll give you the kind of setup. Dolly Bantry and Colonel Arthur Bantry are awoken to the sound of their terrified maid announcing through their bedroom door that, quote, there's a body in the library. And then as the reader, you're like, that's the freaking title of the book. <laughs> um, the colonel calls the police and Dolly calls her friend, Miss Marple, who by now is already very well known to the town and the police as a shockingly good detective. The girl's body is quickly identified as that of a very young woman who was employed as a dancer at a nearby hotel. 
Uh, that's a girl who dances with the guests. This is 1920-something. As the book unfolds, we're treated to murder mystery staples such as hidden gambling debts, inheritances in jeopardy, and more than one secret marriage. Um, so yeah, I won't go any further than that plot-wise, but that is the setup. Did it make you lose your marbles? <laughs> <laughs> yes or maybe. Uh, so uh, my impression is that there are three main categories of Christie. There's Hercule Poirot mysteries, um, such as the extremely famous Murder on the Orient Express, which you may have heard of. And those feature her most famous detective. He's a Belgian with a gigantic mustache. Uh, there's Miss Marple Mysteries, who is still very famous, um, whose methods I've already described. And then there are just like mysteries without a central detective, um, such as the very famous And Then There Were None, where a half dozen kooky characters are mysteriously invited to a storm-tossed island and then murdered one by one. Toby, if you want to talk about how you started and then there were none, you can just say that. Yeah, no, I can mention that. Uh, when I was in high school, or when Dylan and I were in high school, uh, I played, let's say, a pretty important character in the play. <laughs> yeah. If you ever have a chance to see and then there were none on the stage, it's a really fun play uh, and it was fun to be in. It's a great book too. I think it was an effective mm -hmm. beach read. So how does this one stack up with all the others? Well, I was just going to say generally, I would say out of all the books I've read, I like the Poirot mysteries the best. Um, he's the most memorable character by far um, and his dramatic and iconic and wasn't it you, Mr. So-and-so, uh, moments kind of in the drawing room at the end of the mystery are really fun. So specifically to the body in the library. Um, I'm going to go elves first, orcs second. Or clues and red herrings. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so clues first. Um, I will say Christy is known for her hooks. Uh, and this hook, the body in the library, it works really well. Uh, right from page number one, it's the kind of mystery that has you scratching your head and you're like, how did the body, like why? I can't get the image out of my head of Agatha Christie in like a recording studio laying down like a T-Pain-like hook. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting some auto-tune on that Torquay accent. She's known mm -hmm. for her hooks, yeah. I was gonna save this for the fact section, but Andrew, when she was starting out, one of her original pen names that she tried out was Mac Miller. Wait, for real? Yes. What? Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. That's uh, incredible. Uh, another clue. Uh, Agatha Christie is certainly famous for a reason. And I think a good part of why her books work so well is she is a complete master of pacing. Uh, this book reads exactly how you want a mystery to read, which is that it feels like she's kind of slowly pressing the gas continually the whole book. So it starts out kind of placid and just gains momentum and momentum and momentum. And you just get going so fast toward the end that you're kind of screaming toward a solution. Mm. I also will say in this book, she uses Miss Marple really well. So what happens is like I expected to be this is my first Miss Marple and I expected to be with Miss Marple the whole time. And like, you know, sometimes where there are these plots where the detective isn't part of the police, like an interesting part of the book is like, how do they get information out of the police? Not this one. Um, basically, Christy is very free and she just leaves Miss Marple behind for like 30% of the book. And we follow the police as they do their investigation. This is really effective because she doesn't make the police look dumb. They're not like bumbling and stupid. But as the reader, you just kind of see what they're doing and you get more and more confused. There's lots of names. There's lots of like different alibis and stuff. And it's so hard to wrap your head around everything and keep everything in your head and then miss marple shows up every once in a while and is like this is what really happened and you're so grateful to her as a reader that you have like a lot of affection for her and i think it's a very effective technique on to my red herrings 
Uh, everyone, and I mean everyone in this book, including Miss Marple, is so brutally classist that it crosses the line from being historical to gross and then kind of absurd. A lot of the times you're wondering why they're bothering to solve this murder at all, because all of the time they're like slandering her for being low class, uh, that she, you know, this murdered girl kind of interacts with kind of more of the gentry and they say it over and over like, oh, she shouldn't have been where she didn't belong. Like oh she'd still be alive. They call her a lot of like words that I can't even say on this podcast. It's rough. For a while, I thought like Christy is lampooning these aristocrats um, and Miss Marple's clearly going to come in and be like, you guys, you can't see that you're being classist. Nope. Miss Marple comes in and says pretty much the same thing. <laughs> My biggest red herring uh, would be that I don't really think Miss Marple's methodology is satisfying. Poirot and uh, and Sherlock Holmes and detectives like that often, they take these teensy tiny clues and they kind of explode them into like really cool theories. Maybe they have like some kind of scientific explanation. And those are always really fun to watch. Miss Marple's technique is that she thinks that you can know everything you need to know about the world just by kind of knowing the people that are in her village um, and kind of like making each person into an archetype. And then when she meets like a murder suspect, she's like, well, that reminds me of Mr. Johnson, the grocer, and he's a murderer. So this guy's the murderer. How many murderers are in her village? <laughs> I mean, it are like this is a pretty early Miss Marple mystery and already like Christy is kind of acknowledging that she's stretching <laughs> like the possibilities. Um, but, you know, that's I can't criticize that. That's just fun. So, yeah, like, it's just not very satisfying to have her be like, oh, yeah, I read this guy's personality because he's like that guy in my village. Maybe some people like it. But for me, I was like, oh, this is not very satisfying. I also think uh, the most satisfying kind of mystery uh, is the one where you aren't able to guess who the murderer is. But when you get the information, you like smack yourself in the forehead and you say, oh, I should have been able to see it. Like the clues were all there. Mr. Policeman, they gave me all the clues. <laughs> But um, this, to put it bluntly, is certainly not that kind of mystery. Uh, it's the one where when Miss Marple explains how she got to the answer, you're like, never in 10 million years would I have guessed <laughs> because there's like several vital pieces of information missing. You know, it's just not a very satisfying end to the mystery in this particular book. So, yeah, those are my red herrings. And they're pretty big red herrings, honestly. They took away from my enjoyment of the book uh, quite a lot. That being said, Christy is a very strong writer. Her stuff just kind of clips along. And when it's working, it's really a delight to see it work. So I say I feel very, very mixed about this one. And I'll give it three stars. I can't say if you're looking for a Christy to read, I would recommend it. I, instead, I would recommend Murder on the Orient Express or And Then There Were None. Well reasoned, Toby. Well deduced. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I'll pick this one up right away, but I do like Agatha Christie, so I appreciate that. Thank you, Toby. Bailey, have you read any Miss Marple ones? No, I've actually only read and then there were none of Christie, which is crazy. Oh. So I should read more. Oh, the Poirot ones are really fun. Uh, I heard that Dylan got to research the facts this week, and <gasps> he's been he's been kind of teasing them. And I'm kind of excited to hear them. So, Dylan, tell us about Miss Agatha Christie. Okay, I'll just say really quick, Dylan, I think you're going to do really well on this. I think you're going to kill it. That <gasps> was me, the murderer of facts all along. What mysteries have you uncovered? <laughs> well, the first mystery was her name, Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller. Born September 15th, 1890 to Torquay in Torquay, Devon. 
Torque Torquay. in Torquay, Devon. If I'm already butchering this, guys, I'm going to really butcher Gabriel <laughs> Garcia Marquez's hometowns. Um, she was born to Clarissa Margaret Clara Miller and Frederick Alva Miller, described as a gentleman of substance, according to Wikipedia. So cool. I don't know what it takes to get Shame. that title, but <laughs> he wasn't uh, he wasn't incorporeal. That's what that means. <laughs> Stupid. Sure, but it was saying upper middle class. So many, so many gentlemen ghosts around that time. It's just you have to be like that guy's got substance. Well, speaking of ghosts, her mother claimed to be psychic and clairvoyant. Cool. And she believed that out of her three children, Agatha was the only one that carried her gifts, and as such, she should not be taught to read until the age of eight. What? Wait. The- what's the connection there? I don't know. And it's funny because some facts say her mother thought she shouldn't do proper education. And then some other ones are very claim. It's like, no, no, it was a weird psychic thing. So if she was Mm -hmm. a psychic, she wouldn't need to learn how to read. Exactly. Exactly. But thankfully, Agatha kind of saw through that and she taught herself to read by the age of four. I bet she saw through that. She was clairvoyant. (laughs) Well, no, Agatha Christie believed a lot actually in the paranormal throughout her whole life. And she did believe that her mother's spirit did guide her. So... Maybe she was psychic all along because she is the number one selling novelist of all time. Oh, good for her. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I think that often like the thing that's cited about her often is she's third in line after Shakespeare and the Bible. Yes. She has sold over more than two billion books and has been translated more than any other author. After a while, her sister came back from boarding school and taught her how to read, write. They also taught her music. And for a while, she thought she was going to be a classical pianist or opera singer until uh, she went to a school for music in Paris and (laughs) was told that she's talented, but not talented enough. And also she's too shy. Aww. So she got stage fright, so she was not good at it. But the whole time she was writing and she started doing plays with the, like the local kids. And she was also, like Toby, the lead in her local high school musicals or boarding school productions. Love it. Um, and at 18, she wrote her first short story, The House of Beauty, while recovering in bed from an illness. And actually, that would be published later on in a later book. So for the next 10 years, though, she would try to publish other stories to different magazines. They all rejected her. In fact, she submitted the same stories using different names just to make sure it wasn't because she was a woman, (laughs) including under the name Nathan Miller, Cindy West, and Mac Miller. Nice. Also, at this time, she met Archibald Archie Christie at a dance given by the Indian Civil Service that he was a son of the barrister of. Archie was a member of the Royal Artillery and a skilled pilot that tried to join the Royal Air Force, but was denied. Because he didn't have substance. He was a ghost. He was not a man of substance, (laughs) as we will soon find out. They did quickly fall in love and did a huge worldwide tour, or (laughs) worldwide honeymoon, worldwide tour of their marriage. Mm -hmm. Like on the Nile? Like in Egypt, where she has spent time uh, growing up. Uh, they did mm. go to Iraq by taking the Orient Express boom, boom, boom. and also went to South Africa. Fun fact, Toby. Uh, she was one of the first Western women to ever stand up on a surfboard. How can they know? That? She is the first documented woman to do it. She was relatively famous ish. Now she, her writing was starting to pick up. Is there credible evidence as to whether or not she ripped? Was she doing the shaka? Did she catch her first barrel? The only other Western person they can find that was surfing before her is Prince Edward. So she might have been the second Western person to stand up on a surfboard. Whoa. And also the fact that Prince Edward was the first one is the other bonus little fun fact for you. Love it. I like to imagine there was like other people who tried, but they just couldn't stand up. They're like, no, so close. 
But that's jumping ahead of myself because Archie and her had to get through for the First World War first, where, again, I mentioned he served as a Royal Artillery Officer, but she served as a VAD nurse at Torquay's Red Cross Hospital. Guess where she worked? The Orient Express. In the pharmacy as an assistant dispenser, and she passed her apothecary degree. So throughout her whole life, she had an extreme knowledge of poisons. Interesting. She knew a lot about it. Extreme knowledge. In fact, she knew so much about it, jumping ahead, that a (laughs) nurse was able to figure out um, a child was being thallium poisoned thanks to the description of poisoning in the pale horse. Ooh. Whoa. So she solved a murder just by how much she knows about poison. And that she could communicate with ghosts. Yes, that too. So while she was still writing, her sister told her that you should try writing a detective story because you love them so much. And at the time, she considered herself a more literary author. And her sister bet her she can't do it. And Agatha Christie being Agatha Christie, not only did it, sold that story and was able to kind of break it down really well. Don't think I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the third most popular (laughs) author ever. Yeah, she did it so hard. She wrote herself into history. She wrote The Mysterious Affair at Styles in 1916, and it featured Hercule Poirot, a Belgian police officer with a magnificent mustache and a head the shape of an egg. Uh, It's based on the fact that there were a lot of Belgians living in her hometown because they were running away from the Nazis. She was finally able to publish it for The Bodily Head was her publishing company that bought her first six books but they said like we'll publish your, your your little dumb book but you have to write the next six book for us for nothing Ooh. and they became hits mm. so she was in the course of six years all of a sudden she was this huge celebrity and not making a lot of money because in 1926 Archie asked for a divorce what a jerk he was not a man of substance. He could not stand up on a surfboard is there evidence of whether or not he was a kook it was totally whack uh, I bet he wasn't a local bro <laughs> Because he had fallen in love with Nancy Neal. This comes back. A friend of Major Belcher. That does not come back. There was a, basically a whole list of like the British social circles. And I just thought it was hilarious that they had everyone's names. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that announcement, Christy disappeared for 10 days. This is a huge thing in her life. Nobody knows what she did in those 10 days. The It was this huge scandal that like, imagine if Julian Flynn went missing for 10 days and no one knew where she was. Right. It's like... A mystery of the greatest mystery author. Newspapers offered rewards mm. for him. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle hired a psychic. Ooh. I feel like that's his like first solution to everything. They're like, oh, the toilet's plugged again. And he's like, to the psychic. And she was found uh, in the library. <laughs> Ten days later at Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire. I am not sure what that is, but sure. <laughs> She was just hanging out in a hotel. She claimed she had no (laughs) memory of anything, and doctors examining her said she had amnesia. Now, some people think she knew a lot more than she was telling because she signed into the hotel as Miss Teresa Neal, the same last name as the woman she was being loved for, from South Africa, where they had a honeymoon together. So she also might have been doing this to mess with her husband. I love it. I love her. Spicy. But don't worry about her. Because two years later, she would meet Sir Max Malawan, world famous archaeologist. Wow, that sounds like that sounds like a character I would not believe if I read it in an Agatha Christie book. He sounds like the third person killed in an Agatha Christie book. Let's be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. And their marriage would last until 1976. He was 13 years her junior, and she said that the best part about dating an archaeologist is that they are the best husband a woman can get. Because the older she gets, the more he is interested in her. <laughs> <laughs> Sick that burn. Is, that is funny. Um, and she accompanied um, Max Malawan on a lot of his archaeological digs, including the Nile 
And of course, on top of all this, she was selling mysteries left and right, but not only mysteries, but she was also a world famous playwright. She is the only playwright in history to have three plays up on the West End at once. And she is also the author of The Mousetrap, the longest performing play having been performed from 1952 until COVID, until 2020, when they had to shut it down. Got to do it on Zoom. (laughs) We'll keep doing it on (laughs) Zoom. She was made a dame of the British Empire for her. She originally didn't want it, but Max, her husband, told her how cool it was and convinced her to do it. (laughs) Also really adorable. Wait, did she not like know what a dame was? And he's like, no, trust me. She thought it was a huge pain in the butt to get. And he said, like, actually, it's really great to get a lot of cool stuff. Um, He also helped give notes on her book. And she said he always was able to figure it out. Aw. Aw. Smarter than I am then. Uh, I mean, from 1971 to 1974, her health began to fail. And there's this whole thing that if you read her books from around that time, she might have been getting Alzheimer's dementia, including her final novel, The Postern of Fate in 1973. And she died in 1976 at the age of 85. Wow. Peacefully in her bed. They make sure to emphasize that. I was going to (laughs) say. Wow. What a life. I love her. I I (laughs) think I respect her and I want to be here when I grow up. Well, Bill, you can start surf lessons tomorrow. Nice. All right. Well, The Body in the Library, three stars. But Agatha Christie, five stars. <laughs> five stars. Well, I don't know about y'all, but I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. I feel like we could all use a little alone time. Mm-hmm. So let's just take some time to ourselves and hear what Bailey read. Yeah. Like how much alone time would you say you need? A hundred years? Like 10 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, I read a book this week. I think that's what you were asking. Um, I read 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I have a lot to say about this. Whoa. Um, I am going to start just by reiterating for anybody who's new to the podcast. This is one of my greatest shames in that I started reading this book <laughs> in 2010. I stopped with 100 pages to go. Yeah, insane. Insane decision. Insane. For those of you who have read the book, I stopped at what Sparknotes says is the climax, which is the a banana massacre. That just shows how little, I don't know. I don't know. I should have just pushed through. But also, I wanted to say that when I picked it up, I had the bookmark that I was using in it um, from mm. 2010. And at the end, this is a postcard that was given to me by my friend, Lindsay. Lindsay, I don't know if you still listen to the podcast, but you wrote here, P.S., do you have a hip L.A. boyfriend? And this huh. is because I had just met Dylan a month ago. Isn't that sweet? That is very Wait, did cute. I cause you to stop reading this book? It was your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the backstory of this book. I gave up on it because um, you shall see why. And it was chosen. Time to go through. So first things first, I will <laughs> tell you what this book is about. Um, Andrew, uh, Toby, have you guys read it? I have. I have as well. Oh, okay. Well, mm. all right. Well, okay. Mm. It's the history of a fictional town in Colombia called Macondo, and it's told through the history of the Buendia family. The father patriarch moves to this town, settles it with his wife slash cousin, and then we go through their entire line until the end, covering more than 100 years because the characters sometimes live more than 100 years because this is the beginning of magical realism. The book incorporates a lot of magical, strange moments that are just treated as normal. Um, The structure is nonlinear. It's cyclical. We go in and out of timelines. Like Very famously, it starts with the first line. I'll just read the first line, unless anybody thinks they can recite it. Uh, Alberto Stinky Pants pulled himself out of bed one finger at a time, just like always. 
Something like as he faced the firing squad, he something. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Ariano Buendia was to remember the distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. So, yes, Andrew, you were right. I win a million years of solitude. (laughs) Uh, That is a really good first line, isn't it? It's great. But it also shows you that we're sort of starting at the end, but also the beginning. It's all happening at once. Um, Like Mm. I said, it follows the whole family and he purposefully reuses the same names. So a lot of them are named Jose Arcadio or Aureliano or Ursula. Oh, man. Is this bringing you back? Yes. (laughs) So you can know, Pedro's. I probably read this like 15 years ago. So my memories are very faint, but I remember not loving that choice. Yeah, I, in the beginning, there is a, uh, like a, what's it called, family tree that's like, this one's Jose Arcadio, and this is Jose Arcadio <laughs> Jr., or whatever, um, and I would have to refer to that, but at a certain point, I just had to tell myself, listen, the point is, is that things just keep repeating themselves, and it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter, because you don't need to know the details. I would not like to be the one that has to summarize this one for SparkNotes, because it's difficult. Um, in college, I took a class called The Art of Theater Making deal with it um (laughs) and one of our assignments was to read this book and then we did a whole like unit creating short theater pieces of sections of it but we did it like brechtian and all experimental deal with it you guys couldn't see but i just dabbed and put sunglasses on and then ran through a brick wall why i read this book is because i wanted to seem smart yeah that's fair that's pretty much why i read it too honestly so andrew's point about his like very Brechtian hoity-toity plays ties in in that there are some really great moments and like sort of snapshots within the book that I really remembered and loved. Like, for example, I really love the character of Remedios the Beauty and her whole story and how she dies. Um, That one I think will stick with me. The whole visiting the ice I really liked. Um, The banana massacre scene. Those will stick with me. So I could see, like, staging these little moments. He is a wonderful writer. I remember when we talked about Murakami, um, just feeling like you're stepping into a bath of beautiful writing. That's kind of what it is. It's not so much about the details of the plot or the characters as much as just the feeling of being in this magical world. It feels very much like the history of Columbia as told through this town, um, but also a lot of struggles and archetypes as told through these people. I really loved the ending. Um, I won't spoil it, but I thought, I was like, okay, that really hit me. I liked that. And I'll just give a quote that I really loved, which I think sums up the themes. Can you tell that I'm leading to my orcs? Yeah, it seems like you really like this book, and I can't wait to hear why. (laughs) (laughs) There was no mystery in the heart of a Buendia that was impenetrable for her because a century of cards and experience had taught her that the history of the family was a machine with unavoidable repetitions, a turning wheel that would have gone on spilling into eternity were it not for the progressive and irremedial wearing of the axle. So just the idea of like, this family's just spinning on its axle. Mm. So let's transition to my orcs. Which are also your elves at the same time. At the same time happening, the <laughs> past, present, elves junior. Okay. One of the main themes is incest because this family is just like eating itself like that snake that's eating its own tail. Do you know Arboros. what I mean? Arboros. Oh, yes, exactly. And so that is kind of hard to read often where it's like the son almost sleeping with his mother or like so-and-so having a crush on so-and-so. And I thought the portrayal of the women, the women are almost entirely, in my opinion, sexualized. 
and the men are also sexualized. They're always defined by like the size of their members. Um, and I found that hard to stomach. I remember thinking at the time, and it's really coming back to me now, like basing your whole kind of theme on things being cyclical is so dangerous because it's like, if you like something okay the first time, you're not going to like it that much the third and fourth and fifth time. And if you dislike something on the first time, you know, it's really rough as it gets like repeated and repeated and repeated. Yes, exactly. And then the biggest thing I have to mention, and I'm going to go out and say it, I'm going to be transparent with our audience. I tried to read this book, as you know, before, and I tried again, and I just couldn't concentrate on it. I didn't understand who was who, what was happening, what timeline we were in. So in order to get through it, I read the audiobook, sometimes well reading the words on the page. And then when I was finished a chapter, I read the summary on SparkNotes. So I had what teachers would call a lot of scaffolding to help me get through this. I would call that dedication. I would say that's impressive. Well, I would say that I don't think I'm a stupid person, but I felt pretty stupid trying to read this book. And I felt like a lot of people that say, like I was looking on Goodreads and I had a friend that was like, I just love Marquez. I think I've read this book five times. And I'm like, what? Why? What am I missing? What am, What do I not get? So mm-hmm. all this to say, like, I think I can appreciate the book without liking the book. Like, I can understand how this won the Nobel Prize, but I would never read it again. And I don't think I could have gotten through it without the scaffolding. So although there's parts of it that were four stars, it has to be a three star for me. The end. Again and again, three star, three star, three star. <laughs> Jose Arcadio. What about the ice, though? <laughs> <laughs> the ice was good. Do you guys remember what you would have given it? I think I gave it four stars. And I think it was something similar, which was just that I had trouble getting through it. Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, this is I read it in the days before I even knew what Goodreads was. Um, but casting my mind back, I would say I had a very similar experience to Bailey except that I didn't dedicate myself to this book the way she did. (laughs) So I just kind of like let it wash over me. And I remember it being like a big slog to finish. Like in my memory, it is occasional bright spots of writing so beautiful that like your jaw drops to the floor and then a lot of tedium. Um, So I would say probably three stars. That is perfectly put, Toby. And that's why I gave up on it the first time, because I was reading the words without reading the book. Do you know what I mean? Like I was like getting Mm -hmm. through it, but not understanding what I was consuming. Yeah, it really it made me feel bad about myself, which is rough. You know, not an experience you want to have with a book. Uh, Dylan, tell us about Gabriel Garcia Marquez and make me feel bad for my harshness. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, no. (laughs) Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and as much as I want to call him Gabo or Gabito, which a lot of people in Colombia call him, Hmm. also heads up as Bailey, both Bailey knows about me in French and Toby knows about me in Spanish, and I'm sure Andrew would know about me and Italian or Russian or whatever I think most, I think English, frankly. (laughs) I am bad at pronouncing names, so this is going to be very interesting, because Gabriel Jose de la Concordia Garcia Marquez... That's not, not that bad. Was born on March 6th, 1927. Um, it's pronounced 2011, like, like lucky number 11 in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. In Colombia. Okay. Parents um, basically accepted another job in a different part of the country and kind of forgot to come back and raise him for the first five to seven years of oh, his no, life. Oh, no, he was home alone. Well, he was home alone with his grandparents, and he didn't meet his mom until he was seven. Yeah. 
Well, and Home Alone, if she never says, Kevin, and then goes back to get him. And instead is raised by his grandfather, who also sounds like an intense person because he called him Papa Leo. Toby? Yeah, excellent. Nice. But the rest of Colombia calls him the Colonel. And he was apparently um, a hero of the Thousand Days War as a leader of the Colombian uh, liberals. Interesting. Hmm. His father was obviously deeply involved in politics and the running of Colombia and taught him a lot about the history of it. And so this led to a lot of him being an amazing storyteller. Also, don't worry, he took him to see ice being made at the United Fruit Company store. So he has seen ice, just so you know. Um, okay. But growing up, though, he thought that he was going to follow his father's or his grandfather's. He always claimed that his grandfather was his father, basically. Okay. But um, he was going to follow in his grandfather's footsteps and become a politician. And he went to law school, but he considered it a sign of the universe. When he was attending law school, the, the Bogotazo riots of uh, April happened. And then the Banana Massacre as well uh, forced his university to close. So he realized maybe law isn't for me. Yeah, fair. He did stick with law, but he started writing paper articles and eventually took his first writing job at Al Universal. This comes back later. Okay. Because everything does. <laughs> um, he actually was a huge reporter uh, for that time, uh, like basically having the political beat. And he also wrote, I'm trying to figure out what they meant by controversial about this, but he wrote opinion pieces and also actual reporting. And apparently the line between those kind of blurred a little bit until he wrote a 14 part series that turned into fiction halfway through, mm. which I guess they do oh. not, they do not like. <laughs> Uh, he yeah, wrote a you don't want to do that usually in journalism. But once he uh, quit his job there, he started writing his first book, The Leaf Storm. Uh, was his first novel, and it be he was w working on it on and off for seven years while he was a reporter, and he got paid nothing for it. <laughs> but don't worry, he then wrote his second novel, which was known as the uh, his second novel, An Evil Hour, which also did not do well. But it was published. He became an author. But then after that, he uh, wrote a few novellas. But then he spent 18 months, sold a family car, went to Utah, wrote every day for 18 months of this novel he's had in his head ever since he was a child of 100 Years of Solitude. And his wife loved that. His wife actually was his childhood uh, crush. Cute. Cute. Well, huh? they met when they were 12 and 9. And even when he got uh, transferred, she waited for him and came back. And they were, as Agatha Christie went to South uh, Africa and the Orient Express, they went to the South and Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana because he loved William Faulkner so much. That's so strange that people honeymoon in the U.S. I know. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. You, you don't want to come here for Mississippi. <laughs> and not like New York City or like I know. Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> but they would be married until um, for his entire life. But basically... 100 Years of Solitude was a huge smash hit. It won the Romeo uh, Gallegos Prize in 1972. William Kennedy says, it's the first piece of literature since the book of Genesis that should be required reading for the human race. Yeah, I have two things to say about that. <laughs> Number one, I read that on the back of the book and I would continually turn to the back and be like, I'm an idiot because I, I, don't, like, I don't get it. And number two, I want to say like, I always thought that this was a book, like a classic from whenever, but it was written in the 70s. Like, that's crazy to me. Like, I thought it was much older. That's all I want yeah. to say. So he was like a literary celebrity. So he'd go to like New York literary circles. But then he was also considered the expert on Columbia and also all politics involved in it as well. So he would go to New York where he did get an honorary degree from Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but then he would also go to Colombia and he would be involved in the peace negotiations between M-19, FARC, ELN, and the cartels. Huh. So he would be involved in like actual uh, Colombian politics, even though he never officially ran for office. He was a very outspoken, super liberal uh, socialist political figure in the landscape. That's also why his uh, visa was pulled in the 80s <laughs> to come to the United oh. States. Uh, well, that and also he was best buddies with Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro actually had a house reserved for him in Cuba. Whenever he stopped by to visit, this was the official Garcia Marquez house. I'm sorry, it's Cuba? It's Cuba. Um, but Bill Clinton <laughs> um, uh, got him back his travel visas uh, because he loved 100 Years of Solitude so much. All that, right, Bill. That's right. Bill Clinton is Bailey's friends from Goodread. Hey, Gabrielle, we need you back. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that's good. I did not read this book. <laughs> but he was basically writing up until the early 2000s. I mean, he had Love in the Time of Cholera, 1985, Of Love and Other Demons. And also he was writing huge, like, thick fiction books. Uh, one of them is called The News of a Kidnapping, um, which was one of the inspirations for the show Narcos. So we talked mm. about that. He also did write a lot of screenplays and TV Ooh. stuff. And his son... Is his son also named Gabriel Garcia Marquez? His son is named Rodrigo Garcia. He directed Albert Nobbs, a bunch of In Treatment, and he has a movie coming out called Raymond and Ray with Ethan Hawke. So okay. when you see that, Gabriel Garcia, Garcia's kid, um, I didn't say his wife's name, Mercedes Barca. She is also a very famous literary critic. They were married from 1958 Till when he died in 2014 in Mexico City, where he lived, uh, he had a funeral that was visited by thousands. Like, it was this huge event. And the Colombian president said, 100 years of solitude and sadness and the death of the greatest Colombian of all time. Wow. So it was a huge deal. Whoa. And it was an even bigger deal in January 2022 when it was revealed that he had a secret family. What? El Universal. Ugh. The newspaper he originally worked for uh -huh. um, found out that it was kind of an open family secret, but they don't know if his wife ever knew. But he had an affair with Susanna Gatto, a writer and a journalist, and they had a daughter together named Indira Gatto, who was also a filmmaker. But it was this crazy thing that his family knew about it, but they didn't say anything while mom was still alive. And when she passed in 2020, they decided to come public with the story. Well, did you know that? A lot of the men in this book have secret families. Because a famous quote by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is that everyone has three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. And so everyone was really looking at that. So that's why in 2022, you might have noticed his name popping up a lot on Twitter. I did not remember that. And I'm also trying to guess what your secret life is, Dylan. Is it secret life of pets? <gasps> oh, uh, yeah, but that's Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Crazy life. Excellent research, Dylan. Good job. Sorry, random people on Goodreads, but 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Sorry, Bill Clinton. Three stars. Uh, five yeah. stars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, a body in the library, more like a game on the podcast. Andrew, <laughs> do you have a game? Let's solve the mystery of if Andrew has a game. He does. The name of the game this week is How Far is Christy? Now, I think y'all can guess what this game is about based on the title. Nope. Um, no. But when I think about 100 years, I think about a century. And when I think about a century, I think about 1922, because it's 100 years ago. Okay. And when I think okay. about Agatha Christie, I think about plays. And when I think about solitude, I think about Los Lonely Boys, the band. Oh. So <laughs> please hear How Far Is Christie to the Tune of How Far Is Heaven by Los Lonely Boys. 
Oh, wow. Uh, Andrew, this is this is like an improv scene where you're Ada seeing it right now, and I appreciate that. If you guys want to know what it's like to hear Miss Marple explain who did it, it's kind of like that. <laughs> the way this game is going to work is... Uh... <laughs> I'm going to read either something to you, Bailey and Toby, that is either a play that debuted on Broadway in 1922, Mm. um, or it is going to be a title of one of the hit band Los Lonely Boys' songs. (laughs) 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 And I'm going to need you to buzz in by saying How Far Is Christy in your best impression of the How Far Is Heaven um, song. Any listener under the age of like 30 is just going to be like, what is going on? Do we say Christy or Los Lonely Boys? No, because it's not Christy. You can say Broadway or The Boys. Okay. All right. Gringo. How far is Christy? Bailey? I think she was flat on that, so she shouldn't be able to guess. How dare you? I think it's a trick, so I'm going to say um, Broadway. That is correct. You saw through my trick. Tricky, tricky. That is one point. Next one. Onda. How far is Christy? Toby? That'd be the boys. That's the boys. That's right. They're 2000 track Onda. Next question. You can't see the light. How far is Christy? Tobert? I'm going to say play. Mm, That's the boys from their 2008 disc called Forgiven. Ooh. Mm. Wasn't only his record, only as a disc. <laughs> Next question. Evil Ways. How far is Christy? Bailey. Evil Ways. I'm going to say that's the boys. That is the boys. Yes. Ooh. Lights out. How far is Christy? Toby. I'm going to say boys. I think it's a play. That is a play. No. <laughs> Um, so Bailey has two currently. Toby has one. So there's still time to catch up, but getting a little dicey here. Okay. Bonko. How far is Christy? Mm, Bailey. I'm going to say the boys. Oh, you don't know the answer? No, Toby, you answer. I was doing Toby's technique. Mm, okay. I'm going to let Bailey answer this, but I am going to crack down okay. on this nonsense and tomfoolery. Toby did it first. Anyway, I'm going to say the boys. That is incorrect. That is a play. But <laughs> You don't deserve that point anyway. Malvaloka. How? Uh, is heaven the boys say no that's also a play <gasps> no <laughs> apparently 1922 was a big year for spanish words as plays <laughs> <laughs> i never met a woman how far is christy bailey i'm gonna say broadway no that's the boys <laughs> no <laughs> blame it on love how far is heaven play that is also by the boys. Oh, my Jeez goodness. Louise. All right. I might have to pick some easier ones because apparently these the synergies in the world are coming together on these two items. Pins and needles. How far is Christy? Bailey. The boys? Oh, my God. It's a play. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. He admitted. it. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet? How is heaven the boys? No, it's not play. It's the a oh, famous play. I know play. it's a play, but I thought it was a tricky question. <laughs> the monster. How far is Christy? Broadway. That was right. That was correct. Okay, so it's three to one. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's three to one. You need one more correct answer. Oh my God. Dime, mi amor. How far is Christy? <laughs> Bailey. The boys. 
Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 Oh, That's correct. <laughs> Real talk, guys. I was worried this game was going to be too easy. <laughs> <laughs> no. That was up there. Apparently not. With like Welsh literal translation of McDonald's items as the hardest game to differentiate I think we've had so far. <laughs> means it's an excellent pick for a game. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Bailey. Congratulations. The Los Lonely Boys will be showing up at your house to give you a big hug. Yeah, also asking us for royalty fees for how many times we sang their song. Um, well, thank you for that awesome game. Thank you for letting me win. And Dylan, game, it's your time. It's time for you to choose books at random from our shelves. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Hey, The Choosening. After that game, I now feel like I have to kind of tone down how crazy my things are. <laughs> um... <laughs> Because, Toby, you do know that the choosing, while, like, an ironclad contract that you have to follow, like, it's also suggestions. Like, I'm willing to hear any pins you might have. Like, I'm just going to ask you to consider some of these choices. And I'm more importantly going to ask you to consider number seven, your book, Consider Phlebas, by Ian M. Banks. Oh. I think it's Phlebas, but it's P-H-E-L-B-A-S. Um, uh, you know, what's funny is I think that's one of the longest games we've ever played and one of Dylan's longest ever intros to a book. (laughs) Um, this is going to be great. It's a classic science fiction. I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. Ian M. Banks is someone who's considered really, really amazing and I've never read any of his stuff. What about Plebis? What is he's considered? Mm -hmm. Okay. My turn. And uh, to be fair, I do have to speed this up a little bit because we're actually recording in our garage right now. Hey, Dylan, give me my book. And it is very hot. Like, it is burning. Bailey, how hot do you think it is in here? 100 degrees. Uh, I think it's at least 351 degrees more. I think it's number 30, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay. Another Mm. classic of sci-fi. I'm also happy because this book is pretty short, I think. So maybe I'll get to read that and The Goldfinch, which is Andrew's book. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and Andrew is reading The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I'm going to try as well, but no promises. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast. And if you like what you heard today, you can do us a solid by rating us five stars and leaving a review on your podcatcher of choice. This is particularly helpful with Apple Podcasts. Um, And thank you so much for doing that. (laughs) Are you a little worked up? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, and uh, if you discover a dead body in any surprising places um, before you call the police, uh, call your friend and tell them about this podcast, especially uh, if you like books and they like books. Um, To be honest, like our our listenership has been growing, uh, especially in recent months. So I hope people are doing this. And if you haven't yet, like just go on, reach out. They're going to love it. Yeah, and always call your friends before the cops. I was going to say, you should call the authorities first, probably in that that case. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books.